Good morning, Harvest. Uh, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16, where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible under this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hand. If you forgot your Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, for sure, get your hand up and grab one of these as a gift to you that you could take home with you, that everybody would have a copy of God's Word in front of them as we walk through Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 this morning. Now, before we, uh, before we jump into that, there is an announcement I did want to make. Um, as you guys know, we are a church that is um, all about seeing the gospel go, not just across Muskoka and Perry Sound, but to the nations. And so we want to be a church that's involved in planting more churches. And, and uh, we, we were involved in Nicaragua. We we're waiting to see what the next opportunity coming our way would be. We have an opportunity now. There is a, uh, a pastor and his family, Pastor Omar, Omar Soto, he is in the training center in Chicago right now for church planters, and he is going to be planting a church somewhere in Mexico. And so we are going to link arms with Omar and his family. He's been in Toronto for a while, actually. He's been in Toronto um, <clears throat> pastoring at a church there. He came to Toronto, got saved, became a pastor, but then God stirred in his heart a, a love to go for his people, a desire to go back to Mexico. So he's now being trained up in the training center. <clears throat> We're going to get an opportunity to, to connect with him, to then walk with him through the training center to be coaching him through the, 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 the time where he goes to build a core team, right to launch, to hopefully two years into the church plant process. So this could be a three-year commitment for us as a church financially, as well as sending teams, as well as coaching and providing training. But we're super excited to, again, be involved in this. So I, I hope you're excited about, uh, as, as we are, that you continue to pray. Pray for Omar Soto. If you go on the Harvest Bible Fellowship page. You can see a picture. We're going to get a picture next week up here so you can see him, but you can see a bit about who Omar and his three kids are. We're just excited to be uh, partnering up with them, but I want to let you guys know that and you continue to pray with us about that. And more details will be coming as we connect more with Omar and his family and with Harvest to see how we can uh, partner best with them. All right. You got your Bibles open to Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> The question this morning, we've been tracking in this series about um, asking these tough questions of Christianity, these, these tough questions that we would ask God or ask people who follow Christ. Hey, how can you believe when this? And the question this morning is a hard one. How can a loving God send people to hell? You have a couple of choices in preaching this. I could, I could preach this from a, a purely intellectual standpoint where, where, where I could point to the, the philosophical and the theological arguments and, and I could point to the reality that Jesus talked more about hell than the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles combined. He talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. And, then, and we can walk out of here saying, hey, thank you. Now I have a deeper theological understanding of hell. Now I, 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 I have a, a, a good doctrinal construct for what hell is all about. And I can walk out of here being satisfied with that. Or, or the other way I could preach this is I could preach this on my knees. This is a sobering subject. You know, as I looked at all the questions we're going to cover in this series, I, I, I thought there were other questions more difficult than this one until over the past couple of weeks, just digging into this idea of hell until I think this is the most difficult of the questions. I'm thinking I should have given this one to Russ to preach. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it is a heavy topic. It was said that D.L. Moody, an evangelist from the 1800s, it was said that he could not preach about or talk about hell without weeping. 
When you, when you think of what scripture teaches about hell, that those who refuse to worship God, those who do not repent, who do not give their life over to Christ will spend an eternity separated from God in a place so horrible, too horrible, that we can even begin to describe it. It is a sobering topic, a hard question. C.S. Lewis said, if I could take an eraser to one part of scripture, this would be it. This idea of hell. My hope this morning is that, that we both look at it from a reasonable and theological perspective and look at the arguments about how well at the same time that we don't lose hold of the fact that this is a sobering topic, that the implications of what we're talking about this morning and, and what we say about this, that these have implications for eternity. And so before we jump in, I'm just gonna pray. If you'd pray with me before we open up God's word this morning, Lord God, this is not an easy question to answer, not an easy subject to talk about, and yet we see in Scripture, Lord Jesus, you talked about it a lot. God, forgive us as a church for not talking about this more. Father, I pray that our, our hearts would be opened, our, our minds would be opened to what you would have to say to us this morning. And Father, as we dig into this topic of hell, Lord, that it would change us in the way you want us to be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, before we jump into scripture, before we jump into this topic of hell, we need to look at that question again. The question says, how can a loving God send people to hell? Now, now the question in and of itself, when somebody asks the question, it's, it's not a question of, gee, I want to know. Usually it's a bit of an accusation, like I can't follow a God who does this. And there's this presupposition behind the question of what a definition of love is. And our culture has so devalued this word love, this idea of love, that I can stand up here and say, I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. <laughs> and I love my wife. Those had better be different loves, right? But, but we, we, we devalue this idea of love. We, we so cheapen the word love. We so, so, so keep it so surface that our culture doesn't have a great understanding of love. And so we ask this question and saying, God obviously can't be loving because if God was loving, he would only pour out all good and favorable actions towards everyone. I'm telling you, that kind of love is a shallow definition of love. Because if you look at love logically, logically, love can't be completely devoid of justice. You can't remove righteous anger from love and it still be love. I mean, I love my wife. If someone hurts my wife or puts her in danger, my love will be displayed in anger towards that threat against my wife. If, if my kids, whom I love so dearly, if my kids, if they're threatened, if they're being hurt, if they're being abused, and I sit back and I just watch that happen and do nothing about it, Nobody's ever going to look and go, wow, Kai has some phenomenal anger management skills. No, you would say, that guy doesn't love his kids. Deep love demands justice, wrath, anger at times, even on a human level. So, so why then do we try to pin God in this corner to, to do something that we so easily see does not make sense? 
I mean, the Bible talks about God's attributes and that, that he holds all his attributes perfectly and completely and consistently. And what we want to do is let's pull one attribute of God out and let's put it over top of all of his other attributes to the place where it covers them all and devalues them all. And in our culture, and this is our culture's deal, other cultures take other attributes of God and say, this is more important. In our culture, we want to take the love of God and elevate it above every other attribute so we can say, listen, there can't be a hell because God is love. And we elevate love to say, not only is God love, but love is God and it's everything. We try to eliminate God's justice. We try to eliminate God's holiness. But for God's love to be genuine, it actually requires that he also has perfect holiness as well. So we have to understand, how are we asking this question? What's our idea of love? Secondly, here, here's the other part of this as we ask this question. Sociologists are seeing this trend all over the world right now, this amazing trend. I first heard about it when I was reading about this Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He said this idea of, of hell that, that we disdain so much he says it's, it's the North American, Western, modern culture does it in a way that the rest of the world does not. He says this, he says, only those living in the luxury of modern Western culture, living in that kind of ease, would push aside this idea of an eternal judge. As he lived through the horrible atrocities in the Balkans and he, he saw this, this cycle of violence over and over again where, where, oh, you hurt my family, you hurt my people, I'm gonna kill your family and kill your people and just continuing on and on and on again. And what they're seeing is in societies that have this cycle of retaliation, it's only as the gospel comes in that that's broken. When you have no concept of a God who will bring justice, you have to take justice into your own hands. And so Wolf says this, Miroslav Wolf says this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. What's he saying? He's saying it's only in the, the peace we have in our real easy society that we would say that this whole idea of nonviolence, well, to have nonviolence, God has to only be love. That's what'll spur that up. That's how we'll love each other. If, if God's only a loving God, and he says this, in a land in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. He's saying if you talk to people whose homes are burned, whose families have been murdered and raped, how are you gonna keep them from being sucked into this cycle of retaliation, this, this cycle of violence? You can't go to them and say to them, hey, violence doesn't solve anything. There's no reasonable truth or power to that statement in that moment. In fact, it's actually a horribly unloving thing to say that to someone, to throw away justice completely, saying, don't worry about justice. Anybody who's been wronged, you know, you cry out, justice has to be done. And Wolf says this, he says, the only thing powerful enough to reach into that injustice to, to satisfy our need to see justice done, but also not be sucked into the cycle of I'm gonna take my personal retaliation out on this is that there is a God and this God will put everything right. There will be justice and that justice will come from a pure and righteous judge. 
And so let's jump into Luke 16 and let's, let's look at what Jesus tells this parable that gives the most clear, I think, in one spot description of hell that we can find. Such a clear picture, starting in verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what do we see from this text? The, the first question I want us to answer is this, what is hell? What is hell? If you're taking notes, that's our first point. What is hell? The, the great theologians, ACDC, saying hell ain't a bad place to be, right? They're not great theologians, okay? There's this common thought out there, though, in our culture that, well, you know what? Hell's a great place, man. It's going to be great. I'll get to do whatever I want. All my buddies will be there. I can continue living the same way that I live. But what does this text say about hell? I mean, Jesus talks of hell here as being tormenting. All through scripture, we see these, these metaphors being used for hell, that it's, it's flames and burning and utter darkness and gnashing of teeth. And, and one image that Jesus would use, he pointed to this place called Gehenna. Gehenna was a spot outside of Jerusalem where, where the Ammonites used to, used to practice child sacrifice, and they would, they would kill these, these children out on this place of Gehenna and sacrifice them to the false god Molech. And so there'd be a place with these bodies there burning. The Jews used it as their dump, so all this refuse and waste and burning, and, this, and Jesus would point to that and say, hey, hey, that's what hell's like. So you'd ask, if through scripture it talks about hell being this lake of fire, this burning, is it literal fire in hell? I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of theologians would lean to, well, it's, it's actually a metaphor, and, and before you say, oh, phew, glad it's just a metaphor. No, it's probably worse than that. The, the reason we use metaphors, we use metaphors to describe what heaven's gonna be like because heaven is too unimaginable. We, we can't even depict what the, the joy and the peace and the beauty and the grace and the goodness of heaven. So we're trying to, it's, it's like golden streets. 
we talk about hell. Fire's the worst thing we can think of. And, 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 and so, so what, what is Jesus saying? What, what's Scripture saying? It, it's infinitely worse than fire and complete darkness. I mean, verse 23, it says, in Hades being in torment. Verse 25 says that he's, he's in anguish. Verse 26, it, it talks, it gives this indication of, of loneliness. Look at verse 26. He says, and besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. But he says, besides this, between us and you. Abraham's saying, between us, this, this community, between us, between God and his children, and between you alone, no community cut off from God, cut off from community. This rich man now hopeless in there, this, this chasm that separates hell from God, this, this place of torment and loneliness and shame and isolation and separation from everything that's good and pure. But hell not only described as a place of anguish, but you read all through scripture, it's described as eternal anguish. Now, there are some different views out there. I don't believe any of them are scriptural. It's tough to find any biblical basis for them, but people are trying to say, man, that just seems so harsh. So, so people come up with something called universalism, which says, well, after a time, I think maybe once they've suffered enough, then they'll repent and God will accept everybody into heaven. Or there's annihilism, annihilation, annihilism that says this, that says that, well, there's, there's gonna be a time where they've suffered long enough and then God will just, and there'll be no more. And there's nothing in Scripture to support this. In fact, the opposite is what we see. That Jesus presses in so hard in his three years on earth, talks about hell so much because he's saying, listen, listen, your choice for eternity is now and the choice will be for eternity. Either an eternity with God, worshiping him forever or an eternity separated from God forever. And you think about that, you think about, man, hell forever, it seems so extreme. You know, there's two ways you can look at this. One is this, the, the punishment needs to fit the crime. We, we believe that here, right? The, the punishment should fit the crime. And, and you'd say, well, yeah, exactly. That's why eternity seems way too long. It, it doesn't seem to fit the crime. I mean, I get Hitler or Stalin, like those guys should suffer for a long time, but even then, how long's long enough to pay for that lifetime of sin? Eternity seems so long, but listen. We need to see this from this perspective. Who is the sin against? I mean, think about that. If, if I were to lie, does it depend on who I lie to, to, to what the severity of the punishment will be? If I lie to a friend, what happens? I, I may lose some integrity. I may even lose that friendship. If you're in university and you lie to your professor because you hand in plagiarized work, you'll lose your, you'll lose your degree. You lie to the Supreme Court of Canada, you go to jail. Same sin, same, same thing done. I just lied. What happens when we sin against the creator of the universe? 
I think the second part of this is that, that we, we have this idea, well, well won't, won't the sin eventually be punished enough? Like, okay, so we're sinning against the, the highest court. We're sinning against God the creator, but, but won't it eventually be punished enough? And what scripture shows us is that people in hell won't be repentant at all. In fact, hell will be full of people with an increasing anger towards God. It'll be this perpetual cycle of sin and punishment. I mean, look at this passage again. The rich man in hell has a request. What's his request? What's his request? I'm so sorry. Get me out of here. I, 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 I didn't follow God all through my life, but I want to follow him now. No, what's his request? Look at verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an anguish in this flame. It wasn't, I'm sorry, get me out. His request is, send Lazarus. I mean, think about who this guy was. He's this rich guy dressed in purple, it says. If you're wearing purple, you're the highest wealth imaginable. The purple fabric, to get that purple dye, took so much work to get it that only those who were super wealthy or royalty could afford it. So you've got this unbelievably wealthy, rich man who didn't care about the poor at all. Lazarus sitting at his gate. The only one kind of him were dogs that licked his sores. This guy didn't care about him at all. Now listen, listen, don't, don't get confused here. Loving the poor isn't a way to get to heaven. It's not like if you do this, that gets to heaven. But here's something, Christian. Loving the poor is an evidence that Jesus has changed your heart. It's such a clear evidence. Care for the poor all the way throughout Scripture is this, this sign that your heart's been changed by Jesus. But, but here's this guy again. Here's this guy, rich man, in hell, not changed at all. He's still ordering Lazarus around. He said, hey, hey, things are awful for me here. Send that water boy. That guy, I didn't care about him in life. I don't care about him now. He should still serve me. Send him to serve me. No change at all. That same hard heart he displayed on earth now displayed in hell. How else do we know he's not repented? I, I think he actually goes on and blames God for his situation. He says, hey, send people to tell my brothers. What's he saying? I didn't have enough information. If I had known it was like this, I would have chose different. God, it's your fault. You should have told me more. No repentance at all. And Abraham says, no, they've got all they need. They've got the Moses and the, pro and, and the prophets. And look, no, Father Abraham, no repentance, no humility. And the more I thought about this as I studied this text, as I studied other texts in Scripture about hell, this for me was the scariest part of hell. Hell is not full of people that are repentant and sorrowful over their sin. The Bible overwhelmingly points to the fact that, that hell will be full of people with hearts that are growing hard, harder and harder as time goes on, defying God more, hating God more, hating people more. This ongoing cycle where sin no longer has God's gracious hand holding it back. It's fully released and hearts continue to grow harder and harder. That's what hell is, this eternal place of, of torment and anguish. What sends someone to hell then? Like, what would send someone to hell? 
When you ask that question, as we, we hit this second part of the question, what sends someone to hell? When you ask the, the original question, how could God, a loving God, send someone to hell? We're, we're, we're kind of accusing God, you're the one who throws them in, right? Basically, you get this idea in your mind of someone saying, no, no, I want to follow you, God. Forget it. Ah, and thrown into hell. What do we see here from the rich man, though? We understand this rich guy was a, was a religious guy. I mean, you, you see the context of this parable. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and the whole purpose he was talking to the Pharisees was this, which is I wanted to show them that, hey, hey, the outer stuff you're doing doesn't mean you have a changed heart. And so he's telling the story, and you've got this religious guy. I mean, he's saying, Father Abraham, he was a good Jewish, moral, religious man, probably lived a decent life. He probably held a position in the church. He gave well to the temple, but no evidence of a relationship with God. In fact, Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says there's a, there's a clue that you can pick out from the story about who this rich guy was in relation to God. Jesus says, hey, there were two men, one named Lazarus and one... He doesn't have a name. He's just called the rich man. He, he has no other identity in the story other than his stuff. His, his life is defined by his pursuit of stuff. And Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he said this, that sin at its core is basing our identity or drawing our ultimate fulfillment on anything but God. So it's me putting my hope in, basing my identity. This is who I am. This is what will save me on anything but God. So, so you have the Pharisees here that Jesus is talking to. I mean, religion was their God. They followed the Jewish laws to the T, but their hearts were far from God. Why? They're basing their salvation on themselves. I'm a good person. God, you owe me. I've done all these good things. Yet their hearts are so filled with pride and self-righteousness. So, so what's this idea? This idea is this, that we're actually, the, the heart of sin is saying, I don't need God, I need this other thing. So for this man, the most important thing for him was his stuff. For, for others, maybe, maybe you here this morning, that, that might not be your thing, but maybe for you it's, a, a, I need to be liked by everybody. I need to be respected by everybody. I need to be admired and recognized, or, or, or I need peace and comfort at all costs, or I, I need to have good relationships, and I'll do anything for that, or I need to have a solid family, or, or I need to seek out this pleasure that, that, I, that I just love so much, and I'll sin to get that. Basically, it's that, that thing in your life that, that you only feel, feel fulfilled when you have it. And when you don't have it, you are completely devastated and lost. It's what we would call your functional God, your functional Savior. Because really, it's what we worship. And so this rich man here, he doesn't have the identity of a child of God. His, his whole heart is wrapped up in his stuff. And so, so he looks good on the outside, but inside. His heart is rotting. He's only living for himself. In fact, Jesus says in verse 25, it says that, he says, you received your good things. You got what you pursued. In your life, this is what your life was about. Hey, rich guy, this is what you were pursuing, and you got everything you were pursuing. 
And when you start to see that, you start to get a, a clue to what the nature of hell is. What sends me to hell? Well, hell's just a continuation of the life that this guy lived on earth, a life that had no place for God. Because hell at its core is the absence of God. It's, it's, it's being shut off from God. So, so what? So you can live for yourself, which is what this guy wanted. I don't want anything to do with God. And so before this guy even steps foot into hell, there's evidence of hell all around him. Augustine said this. He said that we can smell the smoke of hell coming off our lives. You can sometimes smell the burning of hell when, you, when your heart pursues sin. You can smell that smoke of hell. Well, when your heart's full of jealousy, when you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, when you'll hurt others to get what you want, when you're drawn to addictions, when you're bored with the things of God, that's all smoke from those hell fires that are already burning in our hearts when God does not have the throne of my heart, when he's not at the center of my life, when he's not my all and all, and my heart becomes unsettled, and I start to, to lust after things that I have to get, and I'll control everything to get these, or I'm, I'm scared and fearful that I'm going to lose certain things, so I, I control to hold on to those things. It's the smell of smoke of hell coming off of my heart. So, so in the end, how does one end up in hell? I think it's less of an image of God throwing someone into hell. C.S. Lewis said the problem of pain, it's more like this. There are two kinds of people. Those who say, God, thy will be done. And those who God says to them, thy will be done. It's this life where we continue to say, God, get out. God, back off. God, stay off. God, don't speak. God, stay away. Get out of my decisions. Get out of my life. And God finally says, okay. I mean, Romans 1, 24, it says that God gave them over to their desires. I mean, you, you, you beg for a life without God and God is not gonna force his love onto you. That's not real love. Forcing you to love him is not real love at all. But God says, no, I wanna give you this free will that you'll choose to love me. And so in a very real way, I would say God doesn't send someone to hell. We send ourselves. And then hell becomes this door locked from the inside as our hearts grow harder and harder for eternity. Again, where God's hand of holding back sin is released. And think about it. Think about a, a heart. Think about a heart of anger. Where's it going to go? It's just going to lead to more anger, eventually to murderous thoughts and to murderous actions. That's hell. God's saying, this is what your heart wants my grace steps back, your heart can pursue it now. And for an eternity in that torment and loneliness and anguish and shame and anger. So then our third question this morning then is this. Well, then how, how does God save me from hell? How does God save me from this? Because I don't want to be there. That's not where I want to go. But here's the thing, God never holds hell up as the tool to scare us into heaven. I mean, think about how horribly manipulative that would be to get someone to love you. I'm gonna show you, if you don't love me, this is what happens to you. 
I mean, that's what the rich man wants Lazarus to go do. He wants him to go, hey, go scare my brothers. Go tell my brothers about this place. If they knew about this place, man, they would not want to be here. They wouldn't do it. And Abraham says, no. Abraham said, no, even if I send a messenger to them, even if they see a miraculous sign, it's not really going to save them. And I think, really, really? I mean, I've seen a Christmas carol. That Ebenezer Scrooge thing happens in my room. I don't know. I think I would be changed. I don't know. But listen, here's the reality of it. Someone forced to live in the Father's house, that's not heaven. I mean, heaven's enjoyable because you love and trust God. Otherwise, otherwise, listen, heaven would just be like earth. Battling between, I don't know if I want to follow God or not, but that, that's not heaven. Heaven is a heart given fully over to God. So then how are we saved then? How are we saved? Where's the love of God seen in this idea of hell? Look again at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Is Jesus talking. Can, can you see what Jesus is saying here? Hey, even if someone were to rise from the dead, hey, hey, hey I'm going to rise from the dead. And so when you, when you think about hell, C.S. Lewis said it this way, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is in itself a question. So people are actually asking a question when they say, how could a loving God send people to hell? Here's the question. What are you asking God to do, he says? To wipe out their past sins at all costs? To give them a fresh start? To, to smooth over every difficulty and offering them miraculous help? He's done so on Calvary. I mean, Jesus is saying this, Moses and the prophets point to this, tell us of the love of God. Moses and the prophets say, hey, hey, we were all created in the image of God to be in relation with God, but we chose our own way. We said, no, I want to be God. I want to rule my own life. And we walk away from God. And all through the Old Testament, what do you see? You see God pursuing, pursuing us with his love, this, this never stopping, never giving up kind of love, pursuing after us. But the only way for us to be brought into this right relationship with God, for heaven to be a reality, we have to be, our sin needs to be dealt with because we need to be holy. We need to be righteous to be in a relationship with a holy, righteous God. We would have to be holy and righteous. And God can't just look at our sin and wink and look the other way and say, don't worry about it, you can come. No, he's not a just God then. He's a horrible judge if that's what he does. And what do we see? We see in the Old Testament this, this law laid out and, and none of us can meet the standard. Maybe we can't even come close to the Ten Commandments. Forget the over 600 other laws in the Jewish Talmud. I mean, we walk in here as failures to the law. And so Moses and the prophets point us to why Jesus died, why someone would have to die and rise again, because Jesus came and he, he lived that life we couldn't live, that perfect life that we couldn't do, that we're supposed to, that we would need to do to be reconciled to God, and then he died the death we should have died. He paid that just penalty that we deserve, where we stand guilty before God. All the evidence stacked up against us is all very clear 
Here it all is. And we stand before God and I have no answer for this. And God doesn't just look the other way. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it. No, he says, listen, you are forgiven. Your debt is clean because Jesus paid the debt. God's love shown in the cross where Jesus took on hell so that we don't have to. God's cross is this display of God's wrath against sin where, where Jesus was beaten to the point where Isaiah says you wouldn't recognize him as a man. Whipped, beaten, Nailed to a recycled old cross that other people had already used. So nailed to this cross already soaked with blood and urine and feces from other men. He's nailed to this cross. He's pushing up on feet, nailed into the wood, trying to catch a breath. And they say that the way you would die would just be from suffocation because you would continue to fall where you can't breathe and you'd push up until you were so exhausted, choking on your blood and sweat and vomit, you would eventually die. Even the depiction, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you know, the, the, the people who made that movie say, we held back. We didn't even show the full reality here because we couldn't, we couldn't bear to, it, you, you wouldn't be able to show it if we actually showed it for real. And it's, it's what's it showing? That's just a little, a little glimpse to show us what a sin-caused destruction of hell looks like. Now, the worst part of Jesus on the cross was not just the physical pain. The worst part of Christ's pain on the cross, the hell that Jesus went through began in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's calling out to the Father saying, if there's any other way, take this what? This cup of your wrath away. While Jesus on the cross, Jesus eventually in the garden said, but if there's no other way, your will be done. And he takes God's cup of wrath and drinks it all. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the epitome of hell itself, the absence of God. No love, no mercy, no grace, no peace, only the torment and loneliness of God's total absence and wrath poured out on Christ. When you ask this question of hell, one of the ways you see that God's total love for us, how much he loves us, is seeing what it cost him to save us. That's what Moses and the prophets pointed to. That's why Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible, because he wanted us to see, hey, this is what I'm going to endure on the cross on your behalf. And the cross happened because God doesn't just have to rescue you from hell. He needs to take the hell out of you. And that's only through Christ's death and resurrection. And Jesus took our punishment. And then he rose from the grave. He conquered hell and sin and death so that now you can be declared righteous. And through the power of God's spirit, you can grow in that righteousness which leads me to my conclusion this morning. It's this. You have a choice. I mean, Moses and the prophets tell you you can trust God. Moses and the prophets tell you that, that God loves you so much that he purchased us at this infinite cost to himself on the cross. <clears throat> Moses and the prophets tell us clearly that nothing else that we're pursuing will satisfy us like him. And so we have this choice. And some of you here this morning, you, you resist that choice. 
And Jesus presses in and says, I, I come to give you life and life more, but I come to give you eternal life. And, and you push back, say, no, no. Back off, stay out. I want my stuff. I want what I've got. I want what I want. And the smoke of hell is all around you. There's a story of a Chicago doctor. His name was Leo Winters. The story goes like this. A girl was in a horrible car accident and her heart was badly damaged. She's dying on the operating table. The nurses call Dr. Winters. They call him at his home and say, listen, you're the only one who has the ability as a surgeon to, to save this girl's life. He says, but I'm, I'm at home. I'm not, even, uh, I'm not even on call. And are there no other doctors? He says, no, there are no other doctors who can do this. He says, okay, I'll be right there. He hops in his car to drive to the hospital. He's driving as fast as he can through downtown Chicago. He stops at a stop sign and a person comes to his BMW and carjacks him opens the door, pulls him out, and he's pleading with, no, you don't understand. Don't do this. I have to get, no, please. And the guy pulls him out, jumps in his car, and takes off. Dr. Winters hails a cab, gets to the hospital as quick as he can, but now through all this and through waiting for a cab, by the time he gets to the hospital, the nurse has said, it's too late. She's died. You didn't get here in time. So, but, 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 her father wants to know why. Could you speak to the father? He wants to know why you didn't get here. So Dr. Winters heads down to the little chapel in the, the hospital, and there's a man there kneeling. He comes up beside him. The man stands up, and to his shock, it was the same man who stole his car. So desperate was this guy to get to the hospital to his daughter that he pulled the one person who could save his daughter's life out of the car. And listen, some of you are here today and you're rejecting the only one who can save you. And you can trust him, but you just keep saying no. And listen, God eventually will say, okay, your will be done. And I say this with all my heart. I say this with the deepest amount of love. I can say it. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're saying, you know what? I'm not sure I believe. I'm just gonna wait until then and hopefully it'll work out. Listen, listen, it's the most foolish and reckless decision you could ever make. You have a choice. You have a choice you need to make today. For those of you here this morning and you're a Christ follower, you say, no, I've given my life to this. Uh, I'm pursuing after Christ. Uh, he's the one I want more than anything else. Listen, here's the thing. When we start talking about hell, you'll notice in church, we don't talk a lot about hell. The church in North America avoids this topic. Why? We don't want to talk about it or we can, we can deny it or, or we can hope, well, maybe if I just don't talk about it, maybe it's not true. Listen, just because we don't want it to be true doesn't make it less true. We can try to avoid the, the horrible reality of hell, but listen, this is not a game. I mean, how can the truth of hell not change us? I've heard a famous atheist say it this way. He says, I could never believe what you believe because if I did, my whole life would be about pleading with people, would be talking to anyone I could find and tell people of this love of Christ. I would tell the whole world. But listen, isn't that where our hearts should be? 
Maybe we should stop praying, God, what's your will for my life? And recognize it's right in front of us to talk about the love of Christ. Why? Because there are millions who don't know. I mean, this reality of hell should wake us up as Christians to what we're called to, what we should give our lives to, that we should put aside the little things that we wrap our lives around. Pastor John Piper says it this way, we live with this peacetime mentality in the middle of war. We should have a wartime mentality. When it's war, you don't care about the things you used to care about. Your heart and your mind is engaged in one thing. I mean, do we have that kind of mentality? Do, do we see the reality of hell that clearly that we say, I'm gonna stop messing with these stupid sins I keep messing with? These silly things I keep going back to, it's time to put them away. I'm gonna stop being so overwhelmingly concerned about all these smaller things around me where I hold on to unforgiveness. Well, you don't know what that person's like. Really, really, is that the most important thing in light of eternity? Stop messing around with complaining about, oh, but my church is like this and they don't do that and the music's too loud and the music's too soft. and the, Really, this is what we complain about. This is what our lives are. It's, does not the reality of hell do anything? This is, my, this is why I'm excited to be a pastor of this church. Because the heart of this church, my hope that it can do, the heart of our church is that more could hear about Jesus. We're not doing this because we want, hey, let's have a bigger church. Let's try to get bigger buildings. Let's try to get more than, no. What's the purpose of all? The purpose is that people would know who Jesus is, that people would find new life in him. Amen. Amen. This is why we do it. It's why I, I have no shame in asking for money. Because we're not just looking to, hey, how much more money can we get? No, it's because we want to pour out our lives, pour out our resources. I don't want to come up here on Sunday mornings and do pep talks to make us feel better about life. I want us to point us to Jesus every Sunday. Point us to Jesus because I don't just want to feel better. I want my heart to be better. I want, I want to be pointed to Jesus because I want to point others to that same hope that we have. And, and I want to be part of a church pouring itself out for those who don't know Jesus. Why? Because the reality of eternity has changed us all. Charles Spurgeon was asked, how can you believe in a loving God who would allow people to go to hell? And he said, that's troubling, but not what troubles me most. What troubles me most is how we who claim to have known and experienced the love of God could be doing next to nothing to take the love of God to those people. So this morning as we close, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me as I pray before we sing. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, you, you've, been, you've been pushing Christ away, my, my heart's pleading for you this morning would be to make a decision today. I'm not gonna draw this out. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play music and have you bow your head and raise your hand. I'm just saying like right now that you would say, I wanna follow Jesus. I want my life to be about him. I'm done following the things I've been following. I'm done with not having an identity, with my identity being wrapped up in all the other things I'm pursuing. I want my life to be about Jesus. Make the decision today. Understand, hear God's love for you today. 
You say, yeah, but I'm just as busted up as that rich man was. Listen, I, I love reading through scripture. And you see God's love displayed where he takes a guy like Saul, breathing out murderous threats against the church, killing people, putting them in jail, hating the church. And God says, I want to show you my love. I'm reaching down and I'm changing this guy. And Saul goes to become the greatest missionary that's ever lived. Listen, the decision is yours today. If God's drawing your heart this morning, then right here, right now, say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be your child. Listen, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, what's your call this morning? My prayer would be this, that this morning there'd be a renewed sense for the cause of the gospel. This morning, you, you again would have, the, have this renewal to commitment to the Great Commission, say, this is what I want my life to be about. I want to raise my family in the gospel. I want, I want to reach out to Muskoka and Perry Sound with the gospel. I want the world to know about this love of Christ, and I want my life to be about that. Then make that call this morning. Don't wait for some mysterious God. Come now. The call's been made, right? The call's been made. Let me pray right now before we sing. Heavenly Father, God, we can't even comprehend your love for us. When we see the cross, Lord Jesus, what you took on our behalf, that when we understand what hell is in Jesus, you took all of that on yourself so that we don't have to. God, I think we'll spend all of eternity trying to understand your love. Lord, I pray this morning, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to respond to your love, God, that they would respond today. They'd say, I want to walk a new life and it begins now. I want Christ now. I want Jesus on the throne of my heart today. God, would you make that happen today? Would you draw their hearts today? God, for the rest of us who say we know you, who say we love you, God, would you stir in our hearts or there be a burning in our hearts for the gospel that, that hell would be so real to us that we give our lives to this. And God, we trust you with the results that many would come to salvation throughout Muskoka and Perry Sound and across the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name, in the name that shows the love of our Father so clearly. Amen.